Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 13, a gorgeous poem of hope, persuasion, urgency, and witness. Set either right before the end of the exile or right afterwards, it paints the picture of a limited window of time when God is ready to be sought and found, preserving a sense of God's freedom, saying, it is time right now to make a move toward God. But while this divine unpredictability might sound a little frightening, it also underscores the vastly forgiving nature of God. And finally, it elevates the natural world as a witness to God's power and to our lives, offering yet another connection between us and the divine. Thanks for listening. Hey, Bobby, how are you? Hey, Amy, I'm doing really well. How are you? I am doing okay. I'm doing okay. My grandmother passed away this past week. Yeah, I'm so Um, sorry about that. Recording from my childhood bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In my, in my, and it, you know how going home makes you feel like you're a little kid again? Yeah. So you're, you're getting little kid Amy, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Is that an exposed brick wall behind you? Yeah, that was, so this house was built by my great grandparents and then my dad added onto it. So that used to be the back oh, wow. of the house. Yeah. And for a lot of my childhood, all four sisters were in one bedroom with two bunk beds. Oh, wow. And there came a point when my older sister and I were in middle school that that seemed a bit untenable. So my father, who's very handy, built this back room that I'm now sitting in for two So the room that you were in used to be like the backyard or something. Yes. The room that I'm in was the backyard when I was little, little. Yeah, well, that's. I, I really love that wall. Exposed brick is very yeah, schmancy. Yeah, pretty cool. I know. It's <laughs> schmancy by accident. Yeah. So are yeah, you there yeah. in the house with your whole family? No, well, one of my sisters lives nearby, so she's at home. One of my sisters is coming later today, and then one of my sisters and her husband are here. Okay. So, so you may hear more noise in my background than usual. We're just like we're doing the best we can. I'm you not going to tell mourners do. to be quiet. So, <laughs> yeah, tis what it is. But um, yeah, yeah. It's a, a touch of normalcy to be podcasting from this environment. And I mean, it's true. It's helpful to remember that we're like people with lives who like li- live and work in places. And, you know, there's a four month old in my house who might very well be screaming later. And so <laughs> we, <laughs> we do what we do. And that yeah. is what it is. It yes. is what it is. Right. Yep. 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 Yeah. So, um, Today we get to read from Isaiah chapter 55, yeah. verses 1 through 13. Um, and it's actually, I was, I always look to see if our readings from this section of the Bible are in the, in the Haftarah readings for the Jewish community. Yeah. And parts of this are actually repeated at different times of year, which is. Oh, interesting. Yeah, interesting. 
it comes up, it, it's read while we read Noah, the story of Noah. Yeah. <laughs> and also um, later in Deuteronomy, right, right around Rosh Hashanah, right around the high holidays. Boy, the so, Noah story adds a whole different layer to the come to I know, the waters. isn't it interesting <laughs> to see like how to- <laughs> Yeah. My goodness. I'm going to have to think about that know, a little bit. Yeah. I know, I know. It's interesting. We have read some Isaiah together already this year, but yeah. Isaiah is a complicated book. It is. So what kind of background might you offer our listeners to this, where we are right now in Isaiah? So when we previously read Isaiah, right, we were in Isaiah chapter 9, which was, was Isaiah, back. Yeah, Isaiah ben Amos, the prophet himself, who mm-hmm. wrote in the 8th century or middle of the 8th century or thereabouts. Isaiah as a book is actually seems to come from at least two and maybe three different historical periods, as you well mm-hmm. know. And these are probably people who were followers of the original prophet Isaiah, thought of themselves as sort of disciples of his or belonging to his line of prophecy. And so they added their prophecies on to the end of the book. And then there's some editing around, like there's a mm-hmm, whole thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But so we often will talk about first Isaiah, who is Ben Amos, the prophet himself, second Isaiah, third Isaiah, or Deutero and Trito Isaiah. Mm-hmm. I, Isaiah 55 is actually disputed. Most often it is thought to belong to Deutero Isaiah, the second Isaiah, who mm-hmm. is usually sort of thought as 40 to 55. There mm-hmm. are some scholars who think this chapter belongs with Trito Isaiah, Trito. which is yeah. 56 to 66. I said Trito once and Trito once, and now I don't know what I think. <laughs> <laughs> and now I don't know That's what I think. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. So this chapter has some themes that seem to fit with Deutero Isaiah, some with mm-hmm. Trito Trito Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's actually a really nice bridge between the two. Yeah. I myself tend to read it as belonging to Deutero Isaiah. And if you read it that way, then it places it right at the end of the exile. So this is our third text of exile that we've had in a row. The first one was Jeremiah, who was writing from the land at the beginning of the exile. We had Ezekiel, who was writing from the exile in the midst of the exile. Mm -hmm. Here we have Deutero Isaiah, who is writing at least to the exiles, whether he's in the exile or not, is Mm -hmm. sort of Mm -hmm. a question mark right at the tail end. Either he's far enough along that he can see the end of the exile coming, or he's just on the other side of the end of the exile and sort of offering a word of hope about the new thing that's happening. That's really helpful. And I feel like I'll have to keep that question or those sort of two possibilities in mind as we read, because those feel like really different and so even even if they bump right up against each other yeah. historically, they're really different contexts Yeah, in, in some ways, I think. so. I think that's right. I, in my own head, I tend to read him as writing at the very end of the exile. So they're in the exile. Okay. It has not ended yet, but they okay. can see that they can see something new on the horizon. Yeah. I don't know that I have a great intellectual argument for that. It just seems right to me. And <laughs> so that when I'm Sometimes imagining that's it, the that's best argument. Imagine. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything else we should add in there? You know, I know, or I think, as as we get more firmly into Trito Isaiah, there's this sort of how how do we deal with the restoration? You know, like we had all these huge hopes for the for the restoration, and like not as many exiles as they exiles weren't exactly flooding back into the yeah. land, and you know, so there's some like it yeah, <laughs> reminds me a little bit of the lifting of COVID restrictions. You know, like finally people can come back. Wait, they're not coming back. Like, yeah. <laughs> like what, what do we do? What do we do? Yeah. 
But I'm going to try to hold in my mind that 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 might be a little bit further down the line historically. Mm-hmm. So not to necessarily import that context into into what we're reading. So is your kind of like I said, my sort of gut response is this is Deuteronomy at the end of the exile. Is yours actually that it's Trito Isaiah a little bit later on? I had been thinking of it as Trito Isaiah, but again, not for any very well defined reason. Yeah. So. Um, let's see what unfolds as we read. <laughs> yeah, I kind of like that, that our sort of go-tos are are different. And so it sort of gives us a way of thinking about what does this text read? How does this text read, you know, if you contextualize it differently? I, yeah, I yeah. like that. I like that. You could try on the different readings. Yeah, so um, let's dive in, shall All we? Right. Yeah, let's do it. See what Isaiah has to say to us today. So we're in chapter 55, and I am reading from the NJPS. Ho, all who are thirsty. I'm sorry, ho, we don't really say that in English. <laughs> what is there? Is, Robert is there Alter else? translates it as O. As O? Yeah, let's do O. Ho, I kind of like ho, come to the waters, but then no one ever says that. And it sounds like either Santa Claus or the Jolly Green Giant or like, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, all right, all right. Well, all right, fine. And I well, mean, we'll O and Ho are the o. same word, just with their letters are backwards. Right. Like, you just read just read it backwards. <laughs> ho, all who are thirsty, come for water. <laughs> you said Ho. <laughs> I know, I'm trying, because you said you we liked it. Okay, I'll do O. We'll do O. <laughs> oh, all who are thirsty, come for water. Even if you have no money, come buy food and eat. Buy food without money, wine and milk without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, your earnings for what does not satisfy? Give heed to me, and you shall eat choice food and enjoy the richest viands. Viands? Viands? We used to eat um, Vienna sausages when we (laughs) we were kids. So that's what you're picturing. But we lived in South Georgia. And so instead of saying Vienna sausage, we said Vienna sausage. Because there's a t- town in Georgia called Vienna, right? You live in Georgia. Did I you know that? Vienna? No, yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> so when you say, I don't know how to pronounce that word, but it makes me think about Vienna sausages. But that's probably not what Isaiah had in mind. I think it is what he had in mind. That if you incline your ear, you get Vienna sausages. Okay. Continuing. Verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hearken, and you shall be revived. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, the enduring loyalty promised to David. As I made him a leader of peoples, a prince and commander of peoples, so you shall summon a nation you did not know, and a nation that did not know you shall come running to you. For the sake of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, who has glorified you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we start with this metaphor. Well, maybe I shouldn't assume it's a metaphor, yeah. but I do assume it's a metaphor. <laughs> we we start we start with this language. Yeah. About thirsty, water, food, money. Before we get into, I'm trying to like, this is my inner Bobby telling me to do this. Yeah. Before we get into what what do these things map onto? Yeah. How does just the like, what is the resonance of this language for you? Yeah, I mean, you said you read it as a metaphor, and I think that's probably fair. And I want to read both sides of the metaphor. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't want it to be just a metaphor. I want it to be a metaphor that connects things. Yeah. And the this, I mean, this, like, if you're thirsty, if you're hungry, and you have no money, come get water, come get food. 
To me, this is reminds me of our conversation about Jeremiah, where we were talking about, you know, when you've been put in the exile, what do you do? You plant houses, mm-hmm. you plant gardens, you have mm-hmm. family. And this is very tangible basics of life in the same yeah. way that Jeremiah had yeah. in mind. Yeah. And it's making a claim here on the sort of mundane side of the metaphor that food and water, which have been maybe hard to come by, and which certainly have been commodities whose price is controlled, are now freely available. So you've been scraping by on what you can get, and now is anybody who needs who needs it come. Mm-hmm. And the good news there, I mean, I need food, I need water, I need a place to stay. And so the things you need for life, you you do not have to earn those. Seems yeah. to be what's at at work on that sort of more mundane side of the metaphor. Yeah. What do you see when you read that? I mean, very similar. I mean, I think I'm first sort of struck by this, the creatureliness of it, you know, that this is, it's not a choice. It's not like you, it's not something you want. I mean, maybe you do also want it, but it's, it's a need that everybody has. Yeah. By, by virtue of our birth into human bodies. Yeah. And to be able to say, it is yours without money. Like having, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've had the experience of like being out and about in the world and being really thirsty and not having any money. And that yeah. sense of like, you 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 can't have access to something. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. Like you need to do something to get, yeah. you know, I remember I'm so old. Like when, <laughs> when, when we went from just like, you could freely get water pretty much anywhere to when, Everything was bottled water, and so right. you had to pay for water everywhere. So it's a, yeah, it, it's, you know, overturning that that idea that th- this is a need everyone's born with and everyone is entitled to it automatically. Yeah. No, I love that. And, you know, it's everyone who thirsts and you that have no money. So immediately we, we are clear that there are people who are thirsty and there are people yeah. who have no money yeah. and people who are hungry and so, yeah, so this is, these are necessities, which some people do not have, which now are being offered to them without price. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, when it moves on to wine and milk, does that start to change? Like your, your, you know, you said like, these are necessities. Mm. Are wine and milk, do you think in the same category or do you think it's intentionally kind of building up? You know, I love that question because I, kind of was glossing over the wine and the milk, which why would you gloss over wine in particular or milk? But I have two thoughts about that. One is Mm -hmm. that wine and milk were more staple items in the ancient world than we think of them today. True story. So it was Mm -hmm. actually easier to come by potable wine than potable water in, in some cases. Yeah. So they're not quite luxury items in the way that we think about them. Like, yeah. Wine and curds were sort of part of what you ate. But I I think they're a step up from so I do think there is an elevation here, but not into the realm of like luxury goods. Luxury, yeah. But yeah. into the realm of like the nicer of the things you would commonly eat. Yeah. What do you think about that? Uh I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's a helpful reminder. I remember being traveling around Germany in college at some point and it was cheap it was literally cheaper to get beer than water yeah and Those so Germans. yeah yeah, yeah got- <laughs> <laughs> it was very exciting to a college student yeah but I, I think that makes sense these are are richer more sustaining 
things, mm-hmm. but not uh, caviar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not luxury for the sake of luxury. But then it goes on in verse two to suggest that they did have money. Mm-hmm. They just spent it in a not so smart way. Yeah. How does that, I don't know, does that change your your initial reading of it at all? Yeah. I mean, that that is kind of an abrupt shift there. It is. It is. It is. It hey, is. It's y'all like who have nothing, come and get something. Right. It's like, like a welcoming hug, and then it's like <laughs> has a little edge to it. Yeah. I don't quite know what to do with that. I mean, so I do think there is something there that is. I mean, clearly there's there's a critique that is there, right? Why do you yeah. spend your money? Like, what are you even doing? You're spending your money on stuff that's not bread, and mm-hmm. you're working, and. You know, there's a question about, in my mind, so one is personal responsibility. Like, what are you doing with your money and your labor? Mm -hmm. Second, in my mind, is, you know, these are exiles working in an economy that is not designed for their their well-being. And so it might be, you know, you are in a position where you don't really have any choice but to spend your money for things that don't satisfy. Mm, Right? That's true. You have to spend your money for, I don't know, you live in a food desert. And so you have to spend your money for unsatisfying food. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And that's not your fault, right? That's just the the way it is. And so I think you can, in my mind, I want to sort of keep both of those possibilities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, you should be thinking about what you're spending your money on. And maybe there is a situation in which the, the system is such that the weight of the pressure is toward spending your money on things that are not ultimately satisfying. What do you do with that verse? Well, that's where I start feeling like I need to explore the the other side of the metaphor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what, what do we understand thirst to represent or water yeah. to represent or money to represent? Yeah. 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 When you read it that way, like, where does that take you? Well, I mean, so the book of Amos, chapter 8, verse 11, compares or sort of has metaphorical language that connects water to Torah mm. or to, you know, to, I don't know, what, what what's the word for Torah that's not Torah? Like, <laughs> I don't know if that's a meaningful word to to listeners who are not Jewish. Yeah, I the, mean, Christians would tend to teachings. say to the law, to the teach. Yeah, yeah. To, the law has a weird sound. Has, to yeah, it. that has a whole other set of resonances. Yeah, to, that, to the the teachings. The, yeah, whatever. And and that we certainly could could dig into the idea that this it's like we're talking about spiritual sustenance, and yeah. you're thirsty for meaning. And then I started thinking, okay, so then what is money in that mm. metaphor? What is money, Bobby? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I think that's exactly the right way to read in terms of thinking about, you know, the spiritual side of the metaphor. And what are you doing with your time and your money? And is yeah. it engaged with the Torah? And is it engaged with the God of Israel? 
And I also think that those two sides of the metaphor are actually held together mm-hmm. by the Torah itself. Because if mm-hmm. you read the Torah, yeah. especially if you read, say, Deuteronomy, one of the ways in which one worships God, as we talk about often on the podcast, is by creating a community mm-hmm. in which people have what they need. And so these two sides of the metaphor are not actually different things. They're emph- Right. It's like, not one or the other. Yeah. They work back and forth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then when I read that, I think, okay, well, it's not just food for food's sake, and it's not just being spiritual for spirituality's yeah. sake, but it is being spiritually connected to God in a way mm. that enriches you and your community and also makes sure people have the staple items that they need. And all of all of this for me goes together. I love that. And I love, I have this sort of vision, like visual in my mind as you're talking of, you know, you don't want to take it just literally and lock it into where it is, but you also don't want to translate it and take that literally and lock it in. Like there's, right. there's movement back and forth across this continuum, like constantly. Yeah. yeah. I think that's right. And, you know, you mentioned Amos and it reminds us of our conversation that we had a few weeks ago about Amos 5 and sort of what we concluded there was something like, you need, you need both to worship and also to make sure people have what they need that if you mm-hmm. worship without making sure people have their material needs met, God doesn't like that. If you make the other flip side, which Amos didn't really emphasize quite as much, at least in that chapter, is if you are meeting people's physical needs, but you're not actually doing it in the context of God, like that is also lacking. And here, Isaiah seems to be bringing those two sides together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And then you get this imperative. Mm. Give heed to me, and then and then you get all the good stuff, right? Yeah. Then then you get the caviar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess my first, I don't know. I have a couple of questions about that, but one of them is maybe kind of simple minded. Usually, I think we've read the prophets as talking to Israel, either the Judeans or the Northern Kingdom or Israel as a whole, or something like that. Who do you think this? Who, who's the you in this? Did that question make sense? It does. And ah, So here's the way I read this. Yeah. I read this whole thing as the prophet, who we'll call Isaiah, giving an oracle. So it's actually God speaking. Mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. you to whom God is speaking is, is the people of Israel. The people of Israel. Yeah. Was that what you asked me? Yeah. Yeah. Who's the, <laughs> who, who is being spoken to here? Yeah, and I think that, I think that is certainly a, a, a live and viable reading of it. I, I think I'm interested in this passage overall about particularism and universalism and, yeah. you know, maybe, and, mm. you know, is, is this only directed to a particular people? You know, already some some Jewish interpreters um, were reading this as any human being who wants to yeah. recognize the one God. You know, there's nothing expressly particular about this. Yeah. But yes, if we're putting it in the context of speaking to people at the end of the exile, I'll, yeah, I, I don't know. It's interesting to try on the two different readings. Like, is it is it the people, is it the... Israel lights the Judeans who are in exile that are being spoken to or 
or is it the 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 whole communities of which they are a part? Yeah. You know, and I always say things like this, but <laughs> those two things don't have to be different things. Yeah. Uh, because this passage does. So in a few verse, a few verses later and at the end of verse three, I'll make you an everlasting covenant just mm-hmm. as I did for, uh, for David. Mm-hmm. And that will be a witness to the people and that will bring you nations. So at either way you read it, at the end of the day, what this is saying yeah. is people who were not previously part of the community are going to come be part of the community. So it is an opening out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of the original promise to other, to welcoming a broader community. Whether you read that as sort of happening right here in verse two and three, or whether you read mm-hmm. it as sort of happening a little bit later, I think mm-hmm. it ends up in the same place. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that's right. I like that. Okay, I should expand beyond verse two. That's what you're telling me. I can I can read on. <laughs> I mean, we did read on, but like yeah. you know, yes, it can it continues after verse two. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. And I don't know, like, so the way that I would read it is right here. He's speaking to the Jews in exile, and he's talking about how the community is going to open up. Mm-hmm. You could also read it as you started out to read it as already God is speaking to all people. Mm-hmm. And you know, as Christian readers. Like we hear that, why do you, you know, listen carefully to me, incline your ear, come to me. Like we read that as speaking to us. And so when we read it, we read it actually the way you were reading it as it is already opened, already opened out to include people like us who are, who are not part of the Jewish community. Yeah. And I keep thinking of, you know, the text that we were reading from Jeremiah that was encouraging the people who were in exile to really tie, like to invest in the communities that they're in, you know, to to pray for the well-being of the community they're a part of. And so I wonder at this point if there were real connections between those communities yeah. that would, you know, make the, the broader appeal of this important yeah. because this is, they've been there for long enough. This yeah. is not the generation that left. Yeah. Um, and so they really are going to be asked to extricate themselves from a community that they have been, you know, living in. They've built homes. They've had yeah. families. They've, that is such an important point. And, you know, we talked about how the exile, there's two deportations in 597 and 586. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The end of the exile, Cyrus the Persian is 538. And mm-hmm. so we are somewhere between 40 and 50 years when people have left. And so maybe the very oldest people in the community of exiles were like little kids when the thing started. But most people, you're exactly right have never known any other place. Mm-hmm. We also have some evidence uh, outside of the text that the exile for a lot of Jews, particularly toward the end of the exile, was actually fairly prosperous. You know, they weren't yeah. enslaved like they were enslaved in Egypt. They were yeah. uh, held away from their homeland, but they actually seem to have thrived, many of them. And so I, I think that's exactly right. And so then you think, well, okay, you're thriving actually maybe is itself an invitation to the people around you. I love that. Yeah. As the as this first section goes on and we get into verses three, four, and five, and there's this, you know, there's a reference to David and you know, uh so shall you summon a nation you did not know. I, I actually have a little I I think I'm getting there, but I struggle a little bit with like the plain sense of this text. Yeah. Can you give me your sense of just the the basic, 
the most basic message that's being communicated here. Yeah. Could, before I do that, could you read your verse three again? It was different than the NRSV. Yeah, sure. Really just 3B. 3B. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, the enduring loyalty promised to David. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually have another translation of it that, that is also different. Like the true love I extended to David, I also had. It, it B is a little, a little hard to translate. Robert Alter reads it I will make with you a perpetual pact, the faithful kindness shown mm-hmm. to David. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I like faithful kindness. There's a, a quite a debate about what this verse is trying to say and whether it is about, some people read it as the Davidic promise is being displaced mm-hmm. and is being given to someone else. And who that someone else is depends a little bit on our earlier conversation about who the you is mm-hmm. right here. But, you know, one way of thinking about it is anachronistically is like a democratization of the Davidic promise that now mm-hmm. the people, the the Jews in exile receive the steadfast covenant that had previously belonged more narrowly to David. Yeah. Some people read this as a promise of a new Davidic line, and some people read this as being anti-David. I don't actually think it's either one of those things. I think it is a broadening, like yeah. David is the example of the love I'm now going to have for you. David was great. You're great. I made a covenant to him. I'm going to make a covenant with you. Yeah. And then the end of that, I read in two ways, four and five. First, I read that as people are going to see you now prospering out of the exile and the nations around you are going to come. They want to be a part of that. Yeah. And I wonder if a little bit of that is also that Cyrus the Persian is in view here. Cyrus is going to come run to you and help you on behalf of your God. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure whether you, whether one ought to read that or not, but... A nation you do not know is going to come and help set you free. And then all the nations around are going to see what God has done for you. And they're going to want to be part of that covenant. What do you like? Does that in line with what you were thinking or or not? Yes. And you know, what was really helpful to me in what you said, which is a little bit embarrassing to admit, but I say all kinds of embarrassing things on this podcast. I, I think I got a little literal in my head about like, is he making, is God making the same covenant with, a whole bunch of people that was made with David because that doesn't make sense. They're not all going to be the king of it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. But if we broaden that out and say like the underlying loyalty, the underlying, you know, chesed, enduring kindness, that, that makes, that makes a lot more sense. And then you can still sort of, you know, pull upon the idea of David as a leader and a, you know, and and it's almost like it goes back to that other metaphor of Israel being a light to the nations, like being being a leader in that in that way, not in the like military way or, or yeah. whatnot. But yeah. Yeah. I think I had to loosen my grip a little bit on that <laughs> parallel. It's like yeah. strangling it. <laughs> I mean it's not exactly clear what's happening there, but I, I like where you where you ended up there. So that yeah. people as a whole now are gonna be a, leaders in the world in the way that David previously was a leader in Israel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love this, (laughs) the beginning of verse three. I love the incline your ear. Yeah. Like I almost picture being in a space where, you know, there are so many people different, so many different people talking 
and you don't know what to listen to and you could kind of tune all of it out. Yeah. Or alternatively, you can really sort of focus your hearing on one one of the many things that you could listen to. Yeah. You know, and so I just get this image of like sort of tilt, you know, like mm-hmm. tilting your head towards one voice and then moving towards that voice. But I think again, picturing people in exile who probably have a lot of different theologies or worlds views or philosophies kind of floating around them. I like that idea of sort of, you know, being at a <laughs> being a theological cocktail party and having to sort of, <laughs> you know, tilt your yeah. head and move towards move towards one. I love that. I love that image, Amy, because I do think that's part of what Isaiah is saying is that there's lots of voices out there who are trying to get your attention. Yeah. And so you've got to actually make a little effort in order to listen to God's yes. voice, which is the yes. right voice. It's not yeah. the only one that's available to you. That Those verses, incline your ear and listen, remind me, of course, of the Shema uh, mm-hmm. in Deuteronomy 6, uh, hear, O Israel, or listen, O Israel. And there is an emphasis throughout the scripture on listening to God, which at least in part means reading and paying attention to the Torah. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just think that's like, I don't know. I feel like listening is something that I and a lot of people maybe that I know are not particularly great at. We're more, we're more interested in like talking or doing or, you know, yeah. something. Um, and so I love that that the emphasis is you, you got to incline your ear, you got to pay attention to the right voice and you got to really listen. Yeah. I think there's some richness there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I think picking up on that four and five verses four and five, both start with this particle Hain, which is mm-hmm. related to the Hineni that we talked about so oh, much yeah. back earlier in the Torah but this, it has this sense of, you know, it's not hineni here, so it's not, it doesn't have the the I in it, yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't have any first person, but it's got this sense of like immediacy and yeah. full focus and, you know, maybe some sort of visual, maybe like snapping your fingers at someone or, you know, yeah, once once they incline their ear, it's like, look, this this is where you should pay attention. Yeah, I love that. Hi, I'm Reverend Joanna Herriter, pastor of Peace Mennonite Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Last year was my first year preaching through the Narrative Lectionary, and Bible Worm quickly became my first and usually most significant Bible study tool each week. I love the lighthearted yet in-depth textual analysis and the attention to issues of social justice. Sometimes I just want to take Amy and Bobby's closing thoughts and offer that as my sermon. But I don't, I promise. This year, I decided to support Bible Worm financially and join their Patreon at the basic $4 a month level. If you're one of those responsible preachers who starts sermon prep more than five days before the sermon, you can support at a slightly higher level to get early access to the content. Just go to patreon.com slash Podcast. Let's all do our little bit to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this valuable resource. And now back to this week's podcast. Great. So I'm going to pick up then in verse six. Seek the Lord while he can be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked give up his plans, the sinful man his plans. Let him turn back to the Lord and he will pardon him to our God for he freely forgives. 
For my plans are not your plans, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. But as the heavens are high above the earth, so are my ways high above your ways, and my plans above your plans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to ask first about this. What is your translation of verse 6? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call mm-hmm. upon him while he is near. Yeah. My question is really about this while. Is this like a limited time offer kind of? <laughs> like, is that how you read this? Actually, yeah, it is. Yeah. Which, I, you know, is kind of a quirky thing because most of the time we tend, or at least I think we tend to think of God as being like ever-present. And, Mm -hmm. you know, accessible. But that's actually not the view here. And it's not the view, if you remember a couple of weeks ago in the Jeremiah text, you know, Jeremiah was saying, hey, y'all, you're in exile now. And there's going to be a time in 70 years when God's going to come listen to you again. And all these great Mm -hmm. things are going to happen. The Mm -hmm. implication being that for that 68 years before that or whatever. like, Yeah, Mm -hmm. like, good luck with that. And so, I mean... There is a sense in these texts, and I mean, if you're trying to sort of theologically grapple with exile, God is far from you is Mm -hmm. one way of doing it. God has Mm -hmm. turned God's attention someplace else, which raises its own issues, but it sort of solves the problem of like what has happened to us. And I think this is now God is kind of done with that and is going to come listen, but there is no guarantee. I think Isaiah is saying that God is always like limited time offer, I think is right. That God is always going to be listening to you. So like, now's your shot. So Mm -hmm. make it count. Mm -hmm. Is that how you read Mm -hmm. it? Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's almost like like an eclipse or like, you know, the moment that the moon's aligned with the planets or whatever. Like it's something that happens, you know, maybe every period of time. But like the time's coming. Yeah. Yeah, I saw one other translation that at least raised the question of, whether the Hebrew could be read as sort of seek the Lord in the ways that he can be found. Mm. Like, and the Hebrew maybe has some ambiguity about it, but, but I think the preponderance of smart translators are reading it as, as temporal urgency. Yeah. Yeah. I think like for me, it makes sense. And, you know, one of the things I'm trying to keep in mind a little bit here too, is that we Christians are reading this text in Advent. Yeah. And so when he is near, right, is a part of, you know, there's an incarnational way of reading that for sure. Yeah. So while he may be found, while he is near, that gives us a particular sort of sense of urgency about the the birth of the Messiah as we understand it, that like, that's where we need to be paying attention. That clearly is not what Isaiah himself had in mind, but it's right. Right. But in our perspective. Sure. And, and Jewish readings go similarly. Like that's how this text becomes one of the readings that's right around high holidays. Like there's, there's a sense that there is a time of year in the, you know, Jewish liturgical calendar where the proverbial gates are open and this is that time. It is not all the time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That is so interesting. It helps to have some urgency because if something's yeah. available all the time, it's just really easy to yeah. kick it down the road. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. This is one of the things that my my teacher, Walter Brueggemann, is, is always 
trying to emphasize these the kind of unpredictability of God, right? God is mm-hmm. God and God does what God wants. <laughs> and so when you think you always have access to God and God will do whatever you want, you are creating an idol that is going to lead you astray. And so yeah. preserving these ideas, like God maybe sometimes won't listen to you. <laughs> so like yeah. you, gotta, you gotta make it count when you can. Like that's really important to preserve our sense of God's freedom and to keep us from thinking that we, you know, people are forever trying to control what mm-hmm. God can say and do and be. And mm-hmm. texts like this are trying to remind us like God says and does and bees, <laughs> whatever God mm-hmm. wants to. I think, I think yeah. that notion of a God who can be far from us feels uncomfortable theologically sometimes, but I, I think it's actually really important to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah. So, so eight and nine in this section, I don't know if you had those specifically in mind, but so much of what you said is, yeah, is really just explicitly in there. Like, my plans are not your plans, and my ways are not your ways. Like, my ways are kind of inscrutable, and you, you can't assume, yeah, Yeah. you you can't assume that they're going to be something that you would predict. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I love that. And I think those verses are, yeah, those, those verses are often quoted at least in circles that I move in for that inscrutability. We don't, we don't know what God is up to. And I think that's exactly right. And keeping, keeping that in mind, the imminent God and the transcendent God. And, and this yeah. is saying God is transcendent, but we just had something that said, while God is near, right? So God is both transcendent and also in various ways capable of, capable of being immediately present. Yeah. I also read that higher than, I don't know what you think about this, I read that higher than as better than. So it's not just that you don't know what God is up to, but you your imagination is limited in terms of the amazing things that God is up to. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I think about that is because the previous verse is about God having mercy and abundant pardon. And so I take that contextually to mean we tend to think in retributive terms about Mm -hmm. if you do something wrong, you should be punished. If you do something right, you should be rewarded. And that verse seven seems to be saying God pardons more than you might think God should, right? God is so forgiving. And then then we get that God's ways are higher than your ways. And so Mm -hmm. I think it is both you don't quite know what God is going to do and also God tends to be more merciful than than you and I could ever mm-hmm. imagine God could be. I love that. And I wondered too, if that my ways are not your ways was referring expressly mm. to this promise of forgiveness because humans are not super forgiving. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> We don't freely forgive. Yeah. And I love the way that that puts, you know, I feel like when you talk about like, you're not going to be able to understand God and you can't control God. And this is a limited, limited time offer. It, it, it sounds a little scary, I guess. Mm-hmm. Scary God, but but saying here, like one of the ways in which God is different is that God freely forgives and right. humans don't. So, so it's, it's all over the place. Like it's again, yeah. like it, you can't, you can't map it in some way. Yeah. We're not going to be able to map it. Yeah. I think that emphasis on God's abundant pardon is important. And also what, where you were just headed in back in verse seven, you know, let the wicked forsake their way, let them return so that he may have mercy on them. It's kind of interesting because it it implies that there is a prior action that is necessary. Like you need to incline your ear to God so that God can have mercy on you. 
which is mm. slightly different than God's just going to run around like having mercy on people, which is how I really <laughs> want to read it, right? God is so yeah. merciful, like just like there's mercy everywhere. Yeah. But this seems to suggest like there is some urgency, you wicked, <laughs> unrighteous people, because God wants to have mercy on you, but it requires turning to God so that God can. Yeah. The Calvinist in me does not at all like that, but (laughs) (laughs) the Calvinist in me says we're also, you know, messed up that we could never make that decision rightly. And so we need God to be willing to just do it for us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure that's what Isaiah actually is is thinking here. Yeah. And this conversation is making me wonder again to that, the question that we sort of just held open at the beginning of what what nuance, what kind of point do we want to put on the historical context for this? Do we picture people in exile beginning to open up hope of coming back? Or do we picture the exile is over and this prophet is trying to get people to to mm-hmm. come back? Like, yeah. I know you're you're fairly comfortable in Babylon, but it but you yeah. should come back. Yeah. I, I, I like that emphasis and it connects me back to the first part we were talking about, you know, where you're spending your money on things that you don't need, that aren't satisfying. Yeah. So there is an edge to this here that suggests that maybe some people are comfortable. I think that's, I think that could be well be right. Some people have gotten comfortable where they are. And so they're not doing what needs to be done in order for the next thing to happen. And so they yeah. people need to turn. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're, you, you, and it's so hard because, yeah, Jeremiah did tell them precisely, throw in your lot with the community that <laughs> yeah. you are currently in. And now now they have to change course. Yeah. Because Jeremiah also said when Babylon's time has yes. ended. Yes. And so there comes an end to the time, and this is this is that end. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's see how this, let's see how this bad boy ends, Bobby. <laughs> Picking up in verse 10. For as the rain or snow drops from heaven and returns not there, but soaks the earth and makes it bring forth vegetation, yielding seed for sowing and bread for eating, so is the word that issues from my mouth. It does not come back to me unfulfilled, but performs what I purpose, achieves what I sent it to do. Yea, you shall leave in joy and be led home secure. Before you, mount and hill shall shout aloud, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the briar, a cypress shall rise. Instead of the nettle, a myrtle shall rise. And these shall stand as a testimony to the Lord, as an everlasting sign that shall not perish. Mm. That is so beautiful. There's a lot going on in here. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I love about that is when Isaiah wants to say something profound about God's power, Isaiah turns to nature and says, Mm. here's the natural world, which is a testimony to what God can do and a metaphor for the kinds of things that God is up to. It's just such a, it's just such a rich, you know, when you think environmentally. Yeah. um, The earth I love that. Yeah. When you want to talk about things divine, you've got to talk about the earth. I think that's powerful. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't, I didn't have such a fine point on it in my head, but you're exactly right. And I love it for two reasons. One is just, I feel like I have, I have, 
I, I'm recovering from a practice of sort of ignoring all or sort of glossing over the important role of nature in so many biblical texts yeah. and the way that it really, it sort of assumes your attentive, your attentiveness to the world around you, the natural world in a mm-hmm. way that you can't assume of modern folks anymore, but maybe it can bring us back to that yeah. kind of anchoring. Mm-hmm. But I also can see how like, in the world of human ideas and politics and, you know, various worldviews and theologies that it would be, it it would be nature that is like the ultimate sort of stable witness Mm -hmm. testimony of what is, what's real, real. Yeah. You know, in the, in the, in the world or in, I don't know, all creation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In a way that you can't like debate about. Yeah. The way you said that reminds me of the first part of Ecclesiastes, which is roughly, yeah. you know, the people come and people go, but the world stands forever. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's dive into a little bit of the the details of it here. I am so, for some reason, I'm just so taken by this, this starting point. Mm-hmm. The rain and snow come from heaven and return not there. Like, it just, I don't know, it's such a striking image to think about, like, the rain going back. <laughs> yeah. Going, which I guess there's some natural system where that happens, but not as raindrops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, so the NRSV do not return there until they have watered the earth. Is that what? Oh, uh, well, this has, does returns not there, but soaks the earth instead of until. Oh, interesting. The NRSV mm-hmm. has maybe imported the water cycle. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's ki'im, which is a particle that is really frustrating to try to translate. Yeah, could be any number of things. Well, that's actually a really interesting question because I think part of what's so interesting to me is like, first of all, there's like, it picks up on that above, you know, the above and below that, mm-hmm. that started in verse uh, eight. Yeah, verse eight, verse mm-hmm. nine. Oh, verse yeah. Nine. Mm-hmm. That Bobby and I had a debate before we started about whether to read verse nine with the ones before it or after it. And yeah. that's why I wanted to read nine. With now 10. I see your point. I, I think you might've been right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I, that's poetry, right? Like it points in both directions. Yeah. So there's the like above and below, and then there's the directionality of it. Mm-hmm. And then there's the result of it, you know, mm-hmm. the, the growth that comes, which I don't know. It just, I don't know. I don't know what the question is in there. I think I just, the the way that the poem slows you down to see each of those yeah. separately. I love that. I love that. So the heaven is high above the earth, but they are not disconnected. They're not disconnected, but naturally it's not like con- a, yes, they're, they're naturally connected, but it's not, but it, there's a directionality about yes. the connection here at least. And in the, in the mundane meta part of the metaphor, it's the rain. Yeah. And in the spiritual part of the metaphor, it's the word. Yeah. And those are the things that connect heaven and earth. Yeah. And there is a directionality and there is a result, which is fecundity. And yeah. Just, yeah. The beauty of the the world and the way that humans and other creatures can thrive in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about those the parallel of the rain and the word. 
Yeah. And the rain has this, you know, express purpose of bringing forth vegetation. And then the text is a little vaguer about what exactly the word does, but mm-hmm. it performs what it performs whatever God purposes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my word does what I mean it to do. Yeah. And in this case, it's I think maybe you might read that in light of the next verses where the people are, I think you shall go out and joy in the first instance is thinking about you return home from the exile. So I have said this thing and it's going to come true. Mm-hmm. How do you know? Well, because my word is like the rain. When I say it, it's going to do what I said it was going to do. Yeah. yeah. But I, then I think you can then say, okay, well, if we move on from exile and we think about like, what do we do with this verse in other contexts? Then it's, it is vague, I think in a really generative way, which is yeah, yeah. God's word does what God intends for it to do wherever it might fall, just like the rain. And it is what it does is rich and fruitful and uh, and fertile. Yeah, yeah. Like the world response, creation responds to mm-hmm. God's word. And I think again that idea that you shall leave in joy and be led home secure. I think we can place it in either historical context. Like yeah. we can place it in the hope moment before the exile has ended. Yeah. Or, you know, again, the historical reality that people weren't exactly flocking back when the exile ended. So this could be persuasive in nature. Oh, yeah. You know, it's time. (laughs) The way that you're thinking about that reminds me of a conversation we had way back about, I think it was the manna text maybe, all the way back in Exodus 16, Mm. where the people were like, you know what? Egypt wasn't so bad. (laughs) Like, I wish we could go back there because now we're in the wilderness. Yeah. And so the way you're reading this has a similar kind of resonance. Maybe people are saying, you know what, the exile's not so bad. Yeah. And so to say, no, no, there's there is a an even a more amazing world that could be had, mm-hmm. but you gotta come, incline your ear. Yeah. In order to to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of sections of Isaiah that can be read so beautifully in other historical contexts. When you put them in the context of trying to get people to come back from exile, <laughs> yeah, you know, you know that oh, your path will be made clear, and you know that that's not in this section of text, but adds it a nice for me, like a nice other layer to it with some yeah. some specificity for that moment. I'm really struck by this. So all of this is going to be accomplished by my word that goes out from my mouth. Mm. And, you know, I'm struck by it in a couple of different ways. Like, as in terms of what do we think word means there? What do you think word means there? Is that a trick question? No, I'm just curious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious what you think. I don't try to trick uh, you, Amy. No, I know. I mean, I guess I was thinking of it sort of as, you know, God speaking creation into existence, like that yeah. kind of word that when, mm-hmm. when God speaks something with the intention of it happening, it will. Yeah. Yeah. I love that example. So the Genesis one text, like that is the way yeah. the world comes to, to be as God, God's word makes it happen. I think you can read it that way. I think you can read God's word as the prophecy of Isaiah. I think you can read God's word as the Torah, so incline your ear. Mm. And so when mm-hmm. the Torah goes out in the world, it's going to bring about this kind of mm. mm-hmm. productive, 
fertile reality. In an important way, I think you can read this as the proclamation of what I would say the proclamation of the gospel. I don't quite know how, how you would talk about that, but when we read aloud the words of the scripture and when we proclaim what those things mean in our communities, that proclamation itself has power. Mm-hmm. So it's not just this, simply like the things that we do concretely, although those things are also important for our neighbors, but speaking speaking the truth of the scripture has power by itself. Yeah. 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 I mean, are, okay. So are you thinking of that almost in like metaphysical, like mysticism kinds of ways, or are you thinking of it in a, in a more, you know, not so, uh, not so out there when you said that, I guess my first thought was that like, yes, like speaking something changes like the yeah. the fiber of the universe yeah. in a way that you can't necessarily see but like that it it has like almost a material a materiality i don't think it's a word yeah. it has it has a has a realness about it yeah yeah i love that and you know and so in the same way that the that the rain takes the heavenly and connects it to the material earthly so the yeah. word has yeah. a connection that takes the spiritual and affects the, the reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, me being who I am, I, I tend not to think particularly mystically because that's just not my great gift, but I, mm-hmm. I think more sociologically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds so... <laughs> <laughs> I think sounds, in terms of tax accounting. That sounds no, I'm so sad. <laughs> like here I'm pretty much, I'm pretty well informed by, by Brueggemann here. Uh, yeah. But this argument that we live in, wor- in worlds that are constructed by rhetoric... And so we live in some kind of world constructed by speech. Yes, it just, yes, and th- yes. this goes back to the like, who are you listening to? Incline your ear to me, y'all. Because yeah. if you don't, you're inclining your ear to consumer capitalism or to, yeah. you know, nationalism yeah. or whatever it is. And so words construct realities. And so when my yeah. word goes forth, it will construct a reality for you if you, if you listen to it. Yeah. It's not mystical, oh, I but, I think, but I think it's But it's true. not not mystical. Like, yes, mm-hmm. it starts Yes, with that sort of sociological underpinning, but I, I mean, I think you could t- say exactly the same thing you just said in a in a way that would sound mystical. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, I think you're I think you're right. Yeah, like, I think yes, that's right. Words, words make worlds. Isn't that a phrase? I love that. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not a phrase, it should it should be. It should be. Yeah. No, I don't think I came up with that. <laughs> the other connection, of course, of word especially as we read it in the season of Advent. And mm-hmm. next week, we're going to read John chapter one, which says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among them. So John one is very clearly connecting God's word with the incarnated Jesus, yeah. which the narrative lectionary being what the narrative lectionary is, seems like a clear connection on the, on the part of the lectionary itself. And so one way of reading this in a Christian context is to say, that when God says, my word that goes from my mouth shall not return to me empty, that means the ministry of Jesus is going to have the effect that God intends for it to have. Mm-hmm. Certainly mm-hmm. not the only way or maybe the first way that one would read that, but for Christians, a really important way. Do you want to comment on this, this ending sort of vision of the, the mountain hill shouting and clapping? Oh, uh, yeah. 
the fields clapping and and then instead of a briar or a nettle, you get a cypress or a myrtle. Yeah, I just love that image of the mountains and the hills bursting yeah. into song. Yeah. And it's not here, like it's a little bit, the mountains and the hills are bursting forth because God is so amazing. But also the mountains and the hills are like clapping for you, community, mm-hmm. as you return as to where you belong. Home. So nature yes. is celebrating you, yeah. which I think is I think is su- such a lovely image. Yeah, yeah, they're like you know, <laughs> clapping you out of exile. Yeah, you know, just <laughs> like, like, clapping you back. Yeah, home. it's yeah. like the end of a long race. Like I I've never managed to pull yeah. off a marathon, but oh, I did pull yeah. off a half marathon at one point, and the people who are gathered along the way and like you're exhausted after running so far, and they clap you in give you energy like I kind of view this that way you've you've been through the exile it's long you're tired but creation is gonna be the welcoming party Mm, I love that there's a a poem by that I just thought of sort of as you were talking by a poet named David White called everything is waiting for you and it sort of describes a person who lives you know lives alone in their home but the way that they and it's not about nature per se it's talking about inanimate objects in their home but the mm. the relationship that you develop with the things around you and i think part of it is about the human need to feel witnessed in our mm-hmm. lives and in our trials and so i can see how the idea that you know that nature itself is is witnessing this moment and affirming it would be really Important, you know, again, especially if they're trying to help the people in exile to extricate themselves from that social system and move out, like you're going to need some, you need something to give you energy to do that. I love that. Yeah. I probably told you before that my daughter, who is four now, sort of has come of, come of awareness in the era of the pandemic. And so mm-hmm. she has not until quite recently had any friends because of the nature of the world. And so one of the ways that we have handled that, because she needs someone to witness her life and, and, yeah. and accompany her. And so I have taken to voicing inanimate objects and, you know, the trees talk to her and the roads talk to her and the wind talks to her. She has like relationships with all of these different inanimate objects, which have, are really meaningful to her. That is the sweetest thing in the world. (laughs) Make the road and the wind talk to her. Yeah. Windy. It's really Mm -hmm. (laughs) cool. It's really sweet. Yeah. 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 I feel like we're used to doing it with like stuffed animals, but it doesn't, it's not limited to stuffed animals. So now she goes to her preschool and she tells all the other kids like, hey, did you know that the roads will talk to you? And all all the other kids are like, I know. I was going to say, she might wind up. I'm like, all those other uh, parents are going to hate me because their kids are going to be like, hey, why why don't the roads? <laughs> uh, anywho, oh, a problem for it. another day. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add about this section of text before we kind of broaden our horizon a little bit? I think the last thing for me is that last line that the, the cypress and the myrtle will become an everlasting sign for the God. And here again, we have the connection of God and nature and, and saying the bountifulness of nature is a witness to the nations about how powerful God is and to you 
also. Yeah. So I don't really know what to say about that other than the beauty of the earth stands as a testimony to the power of, of God. Yeah. Yeah. But I, Oh, I love that. It's got, it's, it's got me thinking sort of back to that question of like, what is universal and what is particular and, Mm -hmm. and how are, how is everything both, you know, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to that for a minute because maybe, maybe that'll be my closing reflection. I don't know. Yeah. 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 So after all this, beautiful imagery from Mm -hmm. Isaiah. What would you pull out for our listeners today? There are some texts where I'm just like, you know what? Like trying to pull out a message is like so reductive. Like just read the text and like enjoy the text. (laughs) But since this is the format that we have created for ourselves, I think what I want to say is goes all the way back to the beginning of the conversation, which is the two sides of this metaphor, which we've seen now a couple of times. Uh, that people who are thirsty, people who are hungry, there is food and water freely available to them. And that food and water is both material and also spiritual. And that those two things, those things are connected in the way that heaven and the earth are connected and the rain uh, connects, the word connects. And so I think in my mind, this text is written in a time of complete disruption where we are getting to the end of the disruption. And partly what this text is saying is all of these things that seem like they are in conflict with each other or unrelated to each other or fractured from one another actually belong together. And if you pay attention, incline your ear to the word of God, be that the Torah or the word of creation or the prophecy or in the Christian context, Jesus, And you understand what God is saying because God's word, though God is above us, Mm -hmm. comes to us in ways that have powerful, that have power. Then all of these things will be reintegrated, right? So hungry people will have food and thirsty people will have drink and you will not want to remain in Babylon, but you will see, even though Babylon might be comfortable for you, there is another world that is possible. And the fracture between humans and nature, that doesn't have to be that way. Uh, We can celebrate nature and nature can celebrate us. And in the time of Advent, which it is for for me and for for my community, uh, that notion of where do we see the fractures in the world and in what ways can our listening to, declaring, living out the the word of God, how can that heal those fractures and restore this community as a testimony to the world about who we are? I think this text is such a beautiful invitation about the, the restoration of creation in, in all kinds of ways. And it all starts with, with listening to the, to the word. Hmm. Well, it was hard to give a final word on this text before. And now that you've given that one, <laughs> that's, yeah, it's, um, it, it's, I agree with you. It's hard to know what, what singular message to pull from this text. And I thought, I thought I would wind up saying something about drawing a connection between the the end of exile and the moving at least into this other phase of pandemic living where we, you know, can come back together and are realizing that it's not happening automatically. Like we had all this, we had all this hope that, you know, restoration would look just like it had looked before 
and it's just not quite playing out that way. And, and so we're sort of adjusting to that reality, but, but in the end, I don't know if there's, I don't know if I feel like that's as fruitful as some of these other conversations that we've had over the course of the past hour. So, so the thought I will leave folks with is, is this, this question of, you know, what is universal and what is particular and how can, how can things be both and why does it matter? Mm-hmm. I think at least for me, sometimes messages or, or, or gifts or words or resources that are universal almost feel too big. Like I like that they're universal. It's not that I want them to be limited in who they can apply to, but I also, you know, in that sometimes it makes the world feel a little bit uh, lonely in some way that everything's Mm -hmm. available to everybody. And there's no, (laughs) there's, you know, there's nothing that's especially for me. Mm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think I got this sense, especially in that when we were talking about the the sort of the the mountains and the fields clapping you out of exile. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really that's a really touching image. And it, it got me thinking about the ways in which I can see these details of the world. Of course they're not just for me. Like, you know, that would be silly to think that. But what if I try on the idea that they are? Yeah. You know, like how does that change the way that how does that change the way I care for creation around I love me? That. How does that change the way I relate to the tree in my yard and think yeah. of it as my tree instead of the tree? Yeah. You know, or that and and actually try to have a more personal relationship with things that are clearly universal. I don't know, it maybe will make the world feel a little bit of a friendlier place. I'll try it out that. and I'll let you I'll let you know whether it does or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I love that. And that sort of connection of universal in particular seems so important in this text. Yeah. The highness and the lowness, but the, but the connectedness and people connected to people and to God and to nature. mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm. It's a good, it's a good text. It's a good text. Yes. So this concludes for the time being our time with the Hebrew Bible. It does. It does. Next week, um, we move into the book of John, chapter one, verses one through 18, which, as you said, picks up this idea of the word and takes it in a really particular direction. So I look forward to that. The new set of ideas in John and, and see where we go. Yeah, then we'll be we'll be following John more or less then until Easter. So we've got lots of time to dig in to what John is up to. All righty. All right, Amy, it's good to see you. It's good to see you too. I'll see you soon. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bibleworm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. Special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest sponsors, Nancy Hodgkinson, Dana Fruits, and Wade Holva. Next week, we move on from the Hebrew Bible and begin the Gospel of John, chapter.
chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Until then, keep on digging.